Section 2 of Astounding Stories of Super Science, September 1930. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Miriam Esther Golden. A Problem in Communication by Miles J. Brewer, M.D. Part 2. Part 2. The New Religion This part is interpolated by the author into Dr. Hagstrom's narrative. Every great religion has as its psychological reason for existence the mission of compensating for some crying, unsatisfied human need. Christianity spread and grew among people who were, at the time, persecuted subjects or slaves of Rome, and it flourished through the Middle Ages at a time when life held for the individual chiefly pain, uncertainty, and bereavement. Christianity kept the common man consoled and mentally balanced by minimizing the importance of life on earth and offering compensation afterwards and elsewhere. A feeble nation of idle dreamers, torn by a chaos of intertribal feuds within, menaced by powerful conquest-lusting nations from without, Arabia was enabled by Islam, the religion of her prophet Muhammad, to unite all her sons into an intense loyalty to one cause, and to turn her dream-stuff into reality by carrying her national pride and honor beyond her boundaries and spreading it over half the known world. The ancient Greeks, in despair over the frailties of human emotion and the unbecomingness of worldly conduct, which their brilliant minds enabled them to recognize clearly, but which they found themselves powerless to subdue, endowed the gods whom they worshipped with all of their own passions and weaknesses, and thus the foolish behavior of the gods consoled them for their own obvious shortcomings. So it goes throughout all of the world's religions. In the middle of the twentieth century there were in the civilized world millions of people in whose lives Christianity had ceased to play any part. Yet psychically, remember, psyche means soul, they were just as sick and unbalanced, just as much in need of some compensation as were the subjects of the early Roman Empire or the Arabs in the Middle Ages. They were forced to work at the strained and monotonous pace of machines. They were the slaves, body and soul, of machines. They lived with machines and lived like machines. They were expected to be machines. A mechanized mode of life set a relentless pace for them, while, just as in all the past ages, life and love, the breezes and the blue sky called to them, but they could not respond. They had to drive machines so that machines could serve them. Minds were cramped and emotions were starved, but hands must go on guiding levers and keeping machines in operation. Lives were reduced to such a mechanical routine that men wondered how long human minds and human bodies could stand the restraint. There is a good deal in the writings of the times to show that life was becoming almost unbearable for three-fourths of humanity. It is only natural, therefore, that Rohan, the prophet of the new religion, found followers more rapidly than he could organize them. About ten years before the visit of Dr. Hagstrom to his friend Benda, Rohan and his new religion had been much in the newspapers. Rohan was a Slovak, apparently well-educated in Europe. When he first attracted attention to himself, he was a foreman in a steel plant at Birmingham, Alabama. He was popular as an orator, and drew unheard-of crowds to his lectures. He preached of science as a god, 
an all-pervading, inexorably systematic being, the true center and motive power of the universe, a being who saw men and pitied them because they could not help committing inaccuracies. The science god was helping man become more perfect. Even now, men were much more accurate and systematic than they had been a hundred years ago. Men's lives were ordered and rhythmic like natural laws, not like the chaotic emotions of beasts and savages. Somehow, he soon dropped out of the attention of the great mass of the public. Of course he did so intentionally, when his ideas began to crystallize, and his plans for his future organization began to form. At first he had a sort of church in Birmingham, called the Church of the Scientific God. There never was anything cheap nor blatant about him. When he moved his church from Birmingham to the Lovett Branch Valley in northern Virginia, he was hardly noticed. But with him went 7,000 people to form the nucleus of the science community. Since then, some feature writer for a metropolitan Sunday paper has occasionally written up the science community, both from its physical and its human aspects. From these reports, the outstanding bit of evidence is that Rohan believes intensely in his own religion, and that his followers are all loyal worshippers of the science god. They conceive the earth to be a workshop, in which men serve science, their god, serving a sort of apprenticeship, during which he perfects them to the state of ideal machines. To be a perfect machine, always accurate, with no distracting emotions, no getting off the track, that was the ideal which the great god science required of his worshippers. To be a perfect machine, or a perfect cog in a machine— to get rid of all individuality, all disturbing sentiment, that was their idea of supreme happiness. Despite the obvious narrowness it involved, there was something sublime in the conception of this religion. It certainly had nothing in common with the Christian science that was in vogue during the early years of the 20th century. It towered with a noble grandeur above that feeble little sham. The science community was organized like a machine, and all men played their parts. In government, in labor, in administration and production, like perfect cogs and accurate wheels, and the machine functioned perfectly. The devotees were described as fanatical, but happy. They certainly were well-trained and efficient. The science community grew. In ten years it had a million people and was a worldwide wonder of civic planning and organization. It contained so many astonishing developments in mechanical service to human welfare and comfort that it was considered as a sort of model of the future city. The common man there was provided with science-produced luxuries in his daily life that were in the rest of the world the privilege of the wealthy few, but he used his increased energy and leisure in serving the more devotedly, is God, science, who had made machines. There was a great temple in the city, the shape of a huge dynamo generator, whose interior was worked out in a scheme of mechanical devices, and with music, lights, and odors to help in the worship. What the world knew the least about was that this religion was becoming militant. Its followers spoke of the heathen without, and were horrified at the prevalence of the sin of individualism. They were inspired with the mission that the message of God's scientific perfection must be carried to the whole world. 
but knowing that vested interests governments invested capital and established religions would oppose them and render any real progress impossible they waited they studied the question looking for some opportunity to spread the gospel of their beliefs prepared to do so by force finding their justification in their belief that millions of sufferers needed the comforts that their religion had given them meanwhile their numbers grew rohan was chief engineer which position was equal in honor and dignity to that of prophet or high priest he was a busy hard-working man black-haired and gaunt small of stature and fiery-eyed he looked rather like an overworked department store manager rather than like a prophet he was finding his hands more full every day both because of the extraordinary fertility of his own plans and ideas and because the science community was growing so rapidly among this heterogeneous mass of proselyte strangers that poured into the city and was efficiently absorbed into the machine it was difficult to find executives leaders men to put in charge of big things and he needed constantly more and more of such men that was why rohan went to benda and subsequently to others like benda rohan had a deep knowledge of human nature he did not approach benda with the offer of a magnanimous salary but came into benda's office asking for a consultation on some of the puzzling communication problems of the science community benda became interested and on his own initiative offered to visit the science community saying that he had to be in washington anyway in a few days when he saw what the conditions were in the science community he became fascinated by its advantages over new york a new system to plan from the ground up no obsolete installation to wrestle with an absolutely free hand for the engineer in charge no politics to play no concessions to antiquated city construction nor to feeble-minded city administration just a dream of an opportunity he almost asked for the job himself but rohan was tactful enough to offer it and the salary though princely was hardly given a thought for many weeks benda was absorbed in his job to the exclusion of all else he sent his money to his new york bank and had his family move in and live with him. He was happy in his communication problems. "'Give me a problem in communication, and you make me happy,' he wrote to Hagstrom in one of his early letters. He had completed a certain division of his work on the science community's communication system, and it occurred to him that a few days' relaxation would do him good. A run-up to New York would be just the thing. To his amazement, was not permitted to board the outbound bus you'll need orders from the chief engineer's office the driver said benda went to rohan am i a prisoner he demanded with his characteristic directness an embarrassing situation the suave rohan admitted very calmly and at his ease you see i'm nothing like a dictator here i have no arbitrary power everything runs by a system and you're a sort of exception no one knows exactly how to classify you neither do i but i can't break a rule that is sin what rule i only want to go to new york only those of the faith who have reached the third degree can come and go no one can get that in less than three years then you got me in here by fraud Benda asked bluntly. Rohan sidestepped gracefully. 
You know our innermost secrets now, he explained. Do you suppose there is any hope of your embracing the faith? Benda whirled on his heel and walked out. I'll think about it, he said, his voice snapping with sarcasm. Benda went back to his work in order to get his mind off the matter. He was a well-balanced man if he was anything, and he knew that nothing could be accomplished by rash words or incautious moves against Rohan and his organization. And on that day, he met John Edgewater Smith. "'You here?' Benda gasped. He lost his equilibrium for a moment in consternation at the sight of his fellow engineer. Smith was too elated to notice Benda's mood. "'I've been here a week!' This is certainly an ideal opportunity in my line of work. Even in heaven I never expected to find such a chance. By this time, Benda had regained control of himself. He decided to say nothing to Smith for the time being. They did not meet again for several weeks. In the meantime, Benda discovered that his mail was being censored. At first he did not know that his letters, always typewritten, were copied and objectionable matter omitted, and his signature reproduced by the photo-engraving process separately each time. But before long, several letters came back to him rubber-stamped, Not passable, please revise. It took Benda two days to cool down and rewrite the first letter, but outwardly no one would have ever known that there was anything amiss with him. However, he took to leaving his work for an hour or two a day and walking in the park to think out the matter. He didn't like it. This was about the time that it began to be a real issue as to who was the bigger man of the two, Rohan or Benda, but no signs of the issue appeared externally for many months. John Edgewater Smith realized sooner than Benda that he couldn't get out, because, not sticking to work so closely, he had made the attempt sooner. He looked very much worried when Benda next saw him. "'What's this? Do you know about it?' he shouted as soon as he had come within hearing distance of Benda. "'What's the difference?' Benda replied casually. "'Aren't you satisfied?' Smith's face went blank. Benda came close to him, linked arms, and led him to a broad, vacant lawn in the park. "'Listen,' he said softly in Smith's ear. Don't you suppose these people who lock us in and censor our mail aren't smart enough to spy on what we say to each other? Our only hope, Benda continued, is to learn all we can of what is going on here. Keep your eyes and ears open and meet me here in a week. And now come on, we've been whispering here long enough. Oddly enough, the first clue to the puzzle they were trying to solve was supplied by Francisco, New York's former water commissioner. Why were they being kept prisoners in the city? There must be more reason for holding them there than the fear that information would be carried out, for none of the three engineers knew anything about the science community that could be of any possible consequence to outsiders. They had all stuck rigidly to their own jobs. They met Francisco, very blue and dejected, walking in the park a couple of months later. They had been having weekly meetings, feeling that more frequent rendezvous might excite suspicion. Francisco was overjoyed to see them. "'Been trying to figure out why they want us,' he said. "'There is something deeper than the excuse they have made, 
that rot about a perfect system and no breaking of rules may be true, but it has nothing to do with us. Now, here are three of us, widely admitted as having good heads on us. We've got to solve this. The first fact to work on, he continued, is that there is no real job for me here. This city has no water problem that cannot be worked out by an engineer's office clerk. Why are they holding me here, paying me a profligate salary for a job that is a joke for a grown-up man? There's something behind it that is not apparent on the surface. The weekly meetings of the three engineers became an established institution. Mindful that their conversation was doubtless the object of attention on the part of the ruling powers of the city through spies and concealed microphones, they were careful to discuss trivial matters most of the time, and mentioned their problem only when alone in the open spaces of the park. After weeks of effort had produced no results, they arrived at the conclusion that they would have to do some spying themselves. The great temple, shaped like a dynamo generator, attracted their attention as the first possibility for obtaining information. Benda, during his work with telephone and television installation, found that the office of some sort of ruling council or board of directors were located there. Later he found that it was called the Science Staff. He managed to slip in several concealed microphone detectors and wire them to a private receiver on his desk, doing all the work with his own hands under the pretense of hunting for a cleverly contrived short circuit that his subordinates had failed to find. They opened their meeting, he said, reporting several days of listening to his comrades, with a lot of religious stuff. They really believe they are chosen by God to perfect the earth. Their fanaticism has the Mohammedans beat forty ways. As I get from listening in, the city is just a preliminary base from which to carry, forcibly, the gospel of scientific efficiency to the whole world. They have been divinely appointed to organize the earth. The first thing on the program is the seizure of New York City, and it won't be long I've heard the details of a cut-and-dried plan. When they have New York, the rest of America can easily be captured, for cities aren't as independent of each other as they used to be. Getting the rest of the world into their hands will then merely be a matter of routine, just a little time, and it will be done. Mohammed's wars weren't in it with this. Francisco and Smith stared at him aghast. These dull-faced, blue serge-clad people did not look capable of it, unless possibly one noted the fiery glint in their eyes. A worldwide crusade on a scientific basis? The idea left them weak and trembling. "'Gotta learn more details before we can do anything,' Benda said. "'Come on, we've been whispering here long enough. They'll get suspicious.' Benda's brain was now definitely pitted against this marvelous organization." I've got it, Bender reported at a later meeting. I pieced it together from just a few hours listening. Devilish scheme! Can you imagine what would happen in New York in case of a breakdown in water supply, electric power, and communication? In an hour there would be panic. In a day the city would be a hideous shambles of suffering, starvation, disease, and trampling maniacs. Dante's Inferno would be a lovely little pleasure resort in comparison. 
Also, have you ever stopped to think how few people there are in the world who understand the handling of these vital elements of our modern civilized organization sufficiently to keep them in operation? There you have the scheme. Because they do not want to destroy the city, but merely to threaten it, they are holding the three of us. A little skillful management will eliminate all other possible men who could operate the city's machinery except ourselves. We three will be placed in charge. A threat, perhaps a demonstration in some limited section of what horrors are possible. The city is at their mercy and promptly surrenders. An alternative plan was discussed. Just a little quiet violence could eliminate those who are now in charge of the city's works, and the panic and horrors would commence. But within an hour of the city's capitulation, the three of us could have things running smoothly again. And there would be no New York. This place would be Science Community Number 2. From it, they could step on to the next city. The other two stared at him. There was only one comment. They seemed to be sure that they could depend on us, Smith said. They may be correct, Bender replied. Would you stand by and see people perish if a turn of your hand could save them? You would, for the moment, forget the issue between the old order and the new religion? They separated, horrified by the ghastly simplicity of the plan. Just following this, Bender received the telegram announcing the prospective visit of his lifelong friend, Dr. Hagstrom. He took it at once to Rohan. "'Will my friend be permitted to depart again if he once gets in here?' he demanded with his customary directness. "'It depends on you,' Rohan replied blandly. "'We want your friend to see our community, and to go away and carry with him the nicest possible reports and descriptions of it to the world. "'I wonder, do I make myself clear?' "'That means I gotta feed him taffy while he's here?' Benda asked gruffly. You choose to put it indelicately. He is to see and hear only such things about the science community as well please the world and impress it favorably. I am sure you will understand that under no other circumstances will he be permitted to leave here. Benda turned around abruptly and walked out without a word. Just a moment, Rohan called after him. I am sure you appreciate the fact that every precaution will be taken to hear the last word that you say to him during his stay here. You are watched only perfunctorily now. While he is here, you will be kept track of carefully, and there will be three methods of checking everything you do or say. I am sure you do not underestimate our caution in this matter. Benda spent the days intervening between then and the arrival of his friend Hagstrom closed up in his office in intense study. He figured things on pieces of paper, committed them to memory, and scrupulously burned the paper. Then he wandered about the park and plucked at leaves and twigs. End of section two. Recording by Miriam Esther Goldman.